We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Hi, I'm Yue Shu. And I'm Julie Kraftchik. We're active daters turned dating sociologists. Here to dive into everything modern dating and relationships. Welcome to the Dateable Podcast. Hi, Dateables. Have you ever been in a sex cult? Wow, we're really getting into it today. You can't really even intro this one, can you? No, because I really want to grab everyone's attention right now. Julie and I have been to a play party or two, and they've been fine. They're they're very fun. We were there to watch and to learn. And to be the sociologist that we are. But I can't say I've ever been to an event put on by a sex cult that I know of. No, we have not been in sex cults. I think we would know. Although what we learned today. I don't think you would know. You yeah. don't know. You don't know until years later. So you probably are like, what the fuck are you all talking about? <laughs> We're going to get into it. But you might have seen this documentary. This is how it got my attention. It's called Orgasm Inc. The Story of One Taste on Netflix. I feel like this documentary did not get as much hype as it should because Mm-mm. it is fascinating. The Actually, the reason I found out about this documentary is because our guest today, Rebecca, she's someone I've known for a long time. We've been Facebook friends and she put up a blog about her experience in One Taste mm. And how she didn't realize she was in a sex cult until this documentary came out. So I said to you, we need to get her on the podcast. I'm so glad that you connected the dots on that one, because I don't think, first of all, I'm so glad we got someone who was part of a sex cult, but I don't think people who are in cults know that they're in cults. No. So we found a rare one who came (laughs) out of it and looked back and said, yeah, I was in a sex cult. Well, also the documentary does position it that way. Why I love this episode is because documentaries have an angle that they're trying to take, right? Mm -hmm. But we got to talk to someone who was in the experience who still has mixed feelings about it. Clearly, there was a path of it that was a little dark. And then there was a path of it that was enlightening for her and helpful for her. It's natural to have mixed emotions sometimes. And she still, I mean, in this episode, you'll hear about kind of the mixed emotions, what that means. I think she's still wondering, was it an actual cult? And after the documentary, I also had the same thought. It's like, what would make it an actual cult? But I miss my opportunity, Julie, to be a cult leader when I was a kid. I was on my way. Yes, (laughs) I was on my way. I had just moved to the States and I was rejected from the Girl Scouts. I still don't know why till this day. I really want to be part of the Girl Scouts. Maybe because I didn't speak English very well, but they did not let <laughs> me join the Girl Scouts. Yeah. <laughs> I should sue. This is why I refused to buy their cookies because I'm like, this organization rejected me when I was a kid. And so I rounded up all the immigrant children in my neighborhood and I started my own Girl Scouts. And they would come over to my house and I would make them do chores 
around oh my, my house. God. I would make them do tasks. <laughs> I would make them clean up the neighborhood. And they all listened to me. And I was eight years old. I think wow. I truly missed my chance to be a cult leader. I was very influential in my neighborhood. Yeah, I was going to say that's what's paved your path as an influencer in a way. <laughs> oh, would you say influencers or cult leaders? I mean, I guess like in a virtual I world. I mean, well, it depends how you're going to spin it, right? These people might not have thought they were in a cult. They just <laughs> were doing what you wanted to do. I just bought whatever she pushed. Right, yeah, what's what is the, the line? line? Because like these people are like, I'm cleaning this girl's house. I'm doing the chores that her parents give to her, but now I'm doing it. <laughs> is that a cult or are you just just like helping out a friend. Like, what's the line here? And how much of it's your decision versus someone making it, you do it? I wonder if the line is drawn is when you're told to do something that you really don't want to do. Yeah. And you feel like you have to do it. You and that's kind of what it. happened yeah. with this, too. I mean, we're going to let Rebecca take it away. But there were a few moments that she's just like, this doesn't feel right. There's something weird happening here. And this feels very contrived and forced. But you know what's actually interesting? I'm going to pull this back to South by Southwest last week. We talked about that we went last week. We went two weeks at this time by the time this episode airs. And I went to one session with Cheryl Strayed. Mm -hmm. that she has a new TV show coming out that's based on her advice column, Dear Sugars. It was her and the showrunner. They talked about how they really wanted to make these characters more dynamic, like they were in real life. Typically, in film or TV, you have a very one-dimensional character, right? You have like the person that's the victim. I'm going to relate it back to the sex cult, right? Oh, it's like, like a character. Yeah. yeah, like it's like they have this one path only. And they were saying how you know, the lead character in this TV show, on one hand, she's in love with her husband. And then on the other hand, she's debating divorce and leaving him. And that's natural and human that we have these conflicting emotions a lot of time. So I'm relating it back to the sex cult one, because that is the core of being in a cult. Like there's something keeping you there. But you also know that doesn't feel totally right. Well, that's a push and pull. It's the it's a joker. It's the Wolverine. You can't see people as just this one character, there's just so many, there's a story behind how everybody got to be who they are. Do you think this idea of like complex characters mm -hmm. is is the basis of a cult? And I've listened to a lot of podcasts about sex cults. And it's always that it's like you join a cult because you're so invested in the founder and their story of how they mm -hmm. got there and how they went through these struggles and trauma to get to where they are. So you really respect their path, yet they're being so evil and deceitful. And Rebecca talked about the founder, Nicole, and she was clearly a big part of the documentary of just how you know people idolized her and they would mm -hmm. do what she wanted to say. Mm-hmm. It just so happens a friend of mine may have dated someone who dated her and <laughs> he said that she always had people around her. She had a swarm of people everywhere she went. She had her own groupies and the reason for their breakup was really because they could never be alone. She needed to be around people. She fed off of people's energy and her influence over people. He knew why she was so influential. She was super charismatic. And when she talked to you, you felt like you're the only person in the room. Those are two main characteristics of a cult leader and a good politician, right? Yeah. Maybe they're kind of the same thing. And a narcissist. <laughs> Someone love bombing you, right? That feels like it. you're the only person in the room. They've singled you out. They've made yep. you feel special. Yeah. I love doing these episodes because sex is clearly a part of dating and relationships. And there's always something deeper too. It's not just the act of sex, but it's like, why are we turning to foundations like one taste like what is the deeper meaning and how that impacts our relationship that we have with others and what's going on for ourselves it's always a bit more to unravel than just oh hey i was at a sex cult uh, yeah it's community community is the basis of every organization and their success if you find belonging somewhere you are a loyal participant fan 
subscriber consumer for life to that brand. This is why brands have these brand stories too. It's like they're building this community behind the brand. So it's like human psychology, but just taking it to a very intense level of influence. And people do use it for evil, which is unfortunate. But I guess at the basis, we're also building community here. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. call us cult leaders, but we're surely trying to help people understand the sense of belonging. Because if you're dating right now, you belong in the dateable community. We know what you're going through and you're not alone. Yeah, I mean, belonging is a real thing. I'm even thinking about South by Southwest again. You went to a (laughs) session about the 100-year life and how we're all more on track to be living longer. And at the basis of it was what keeps you satisfied for years was community and belonging, right? That Mm -hmm. was kind of their core takeaways. Of course, I wasn't at the session. I'm just reiterating what you said. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) You took away exactly what they said in in an hour. Well, the key to longevity is community. If we do not have a sense of belonging, if we don't feel connected to other human beings, then we don't have purpose in life. So if you feel connected, this is why senior homes and assisted living communities, there's one near my parents' house, they thrive because everyone feels connected. There's a purpose to after retirement, what that is. And then you feel like, oh, I can keep going for many more years. Like this stat is so crazy to me. The average person will have 30 plus years after retirement to figure out what the fuck to do with their life. Wow. Back in the day, you retire and you die. You're like, okay, my purpose is work, family, done. But imagine 30 years of trying to figure out, do I take on new skills, new hobbies, new friends? Do I want to live somewhere else? You have a whole other life ahead of you after retirement. You know, it's so interesting to hear this because we think, and I'm so guilty of this, it's like we think we get into a relationship, we need to rush everything, move things Mm. along, get to the next milestone. But when you really think about it, you're like, I have 30 plus years with someone. It's a long ass time. If not more. It's a long ass time. So even if you haven't found your person yet, you still get a long time. To spend with them. That's you got time. <laughs> the dating scene in those senior houses. Oh, yeah. It's facilities. killer. Thriving. Thriving. <laughs> do you think they're on apps or do they just have to like walk down the hall and find someone? I think they're more into IRL. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure there are apps for people who are not in those communities <laughs> specifically. Oh, yeah. Our time, right? Our time. But I, I've also heard this that they don't. Or they're not looking for relationships. They're looking right. to hook up. Looking to fuck. Yeah. They're looking to have a good fucking time. <laughs> they're looking time. for a sex cult. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Maybe that's the new good sex idea. cult. <laughs> you wait, your your chance is still here to be a cult leader. You haven't lost it yet. <laughs> okay, good. I'm a 40-year-old leading a bunch of 80-year-olds. <laughs> it's my life purpose. You can also do it when you're 80. Like you still have time. You got time. You got 40 years to fine-tune this craft. Anyways, I found my purpose for you back. I think the key is belonging, but also having a gut check. Does this feel right? Because when we talked to Rebecca, that was something she talked about. And in the documentary, a lot of people were kind of going along with it, not thinking Mm. too much. And then when they did think about it, they were told like, oh, no, you're not right. Like, this is good. Keep going. Keep going. Knowing yourself, it all comes back to knowing yourself, knowing yourself, trusting your instincts, all that is important. So you're in the right group of belonging and you're not in a situation that may not end up being good for you in the long haul. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, belonging just to belong is not the path. It's finding something that actually feels good and connects with your mission and soul and all the things. (sighs) All the things. All the things. All the things. Well, anyways, we're going to get into this episode. Uh, We love this episode. Our editor, Stefan, said that this was mind-blowing as he was editing (laughs) it. So just want to drop that. I can't imagine editing this episode. (laughs) He was just like, wrote back and he was like, holy shit, what was this? episode this was incredible so i'm gonna hype it that way if you are unsure you're like i don't know i'm not in a sex call i don't know think i'd be in a sex call just keep going keep going <laughs>
I wonder if anybody's like, I don't know. I've never been to a sex cult. I'm going to skip this episode. I feel like most of you are like, holy shit, sex cult? Yes. Press play. (laughs) I mean, there are some people that are like, this isn't relevant. I'm going to skip it. But don't skip it. Don't skip it. That's all we're saying. (laughs) Okay. Well, quick announcements. Exit Interview. That's our other podcast that we're doing with iHeart Podcasts. It is our new baby that's been launched into this world. We love this podcast so much. If you're new to this, we talk to whoever the subject is this week, their exes, their first dates, their hookups, any past flame they have that can shed light into why their dating life isn't going the way they want it to be going. So we've gotten such great feedback so far. So if you aren't tuned in yet, make sure to go over to Exit Interview on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, and leave a rating and review. This is a new show, so really, really helps us to get those rating and reviews in. Give us five stars, and in the review, you can answer the question, would you ever go through an exit interview yourself? Just tell us that. <laughs> We, we want to hear. This is like a mini poll in itself. And, you know, we are going to be reading some of these reviews on air. So make mm. it fun. We'll probably do that next week. So get them in so you can make the cut. We'll keep them anonymous. Don't worry. We'll keep, we'll keep them, keep them anonymous. anonymous. Yes. Yes, we will. And at Dateable Podcast, that is our Instagram. Leave us a rating and review if you haven't yet. At Julie Craftchick is my new Instagram. At Nonplatonic is UA's Instagram. Make sure to follow us there as well. We've given you so many places to connect with us, but we love connecting with you. So we hope you do too. At Dateable Sex Cult is our new Instagram. Feel <laughs> free to follow us there. People are going to search for that one. They're like, I don't care about all the rest of them. We're going there. <laughs> it's $2,000 to join. Yeah. We'll it's our OnlyFans. Coming up. <laughs> Okay, well, there's nothing more to say. So let's let's get into our sponsors before we get into this. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. I recently learned that I can get triggered because I jump to conclusions, but I could avoid that if I could just pause and seek understanding of what is being said to me. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. Therapy has helped me unlearn from my past and forge a new path that benefits me better. My therapist makes me feel like I have a cheerleader who is always rooting for me. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Datable today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E. This episode is sponsored by Via. We all know there are things that can help set the mood in the bedroom, but did you know a little THC could also do that? Yes, Via has developed a unique blend of pleasure-enhancing cannabinoids, libido-strengthening herbs, and a low dose of THC all into one mind-blowing gummy called High Love. This gummy, wow, it will awaken your senses, increase blood flow, and intensify any sexual experience. I've been pleasantly surprised by the High Love gummies because it is just the right amount of THC for me to have a good time without feeling sleepy. And hey, if THC is not your thing, Via also offers a wide array of other gummies without it. And everything legally ships in 50 states with discreet packaging directly to your door. So if you're over 21, you can get 15% off and a free pack of award-winning Dreams THC plus CBN sleep gummies with our exclusive code DATABLE at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. Let the gummies work their magic. Head to ViaHemp.com and use a code DATABLE to receive 15% off and one free sample of their sleepy dream gummies. That's ViaHemp.com and use a code D-A-T-E-A-B-L-E at checkout. Take your passion and pleasure to a whole new level with high love from Via Hemp. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line. 
line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Okay, let's hear it from Rebecca about what it was like to be in a sex cult. Rebecca, so glad to have you on our show to talk about a very interesting topic, sex cults. (laughs) It's just a normal Tuesday for us, you know, (laughs) sex cults, sex cult Tuesday, taco Tuesday. So normal for me. (laughs) Well, there's just been a recent influx of content around sex cults. And one of them happens to be a documentary on Netflix focused on an organization called One Taste that started in San Francisco and expanded globally. The documentary is called Orgasm Inc. The Story of One Taste. And it aired last October. And we're about to have a firsthand experience of what it was like to be part of One Taste through our guest today. Rebecca, welcome. It's so bizarre to me that I'm the one who knows about this sort of thing, because I don't think I even realized I was in a sex cult. And so it's really weird to suddenly be talking about it on a podcast. Well, you know, the thing is, I've watched a lot of documentaries about cults. Nobody knows they're in a cult. Right. Nobody's actively being like, I'm in a cult here. No. Just like six years later, when Netflix comes out, the documentary, do you realize that you were in one? You're like, right. Oh, yes. So who is Rebecca? She's 40 years old, lives in SF. She's been there for 13 years, originally from Colorado and single and actively going on dates. We first saw a Facebook post of yours and Julie will get into this because she was like, we got to get Rebecca on our show. Yeah, I've known Rebecca for years. I saw this come up and you were like, am I in a sex cult? Did this happen? And it's kind of like what you were just saying. So (laughs) we definitely want to hear it from you. I watched the documentary. It was very eye-opening. But I guess from your perspective, what was this experience like? It was really big for me to write this post on Facebook. I guess for me, yeah, it took me a while to really realize that I knew something was off. Like, I think that is what has been really interesting to me looking back is that I was kind of involved with One Taste for about six years and my body knew something was off. Like, I'm doing these practices with people that I don't know that are very personal and very intimate. (laughs) And I'm feeling pressured to do them. But the energy is like supposed to be exciting and exploratory. I mean, I don't really know how to describe the experience of what it was like to be in one taste other than just confusing and magical all at the same time. Rebecca, let's take a step back for anybody who doesn't know what one taste is. Before describing the practice, what attracted you to this organization in the first place? Yeah. So when I moved to the Bay Area, I guess about 13 years ago, I was in school at CIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies, getting my master's in philosophy. And I remember there was a flyer on a bulletin board in the cafe. There was something about like sexuality and meditation. I was just bright-eyed moving to the Bay Area from Colorado, pretty naive, and took a piece of the flyer and just showed up at this place. On, I think it was a random Saturday for like a day long learning about orgasmic meditation. Okay. And so I think the reason I was pulled is I knew there was something missing around my relationship to my sexuality. And I think I didn't know what it was at the time, but I knew one taste had it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. What was it? Was like an intro class? I saw like on the documentary, they kind of had these like intros to orgasmic meditation. What did you go to and like what happened at that? <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So it's strange because looking back, it was just this like weird warehouse, little house off Folsom. It wasn't the big space they had on Market Street, which is where they kind of moved. And then I would go there a lot more frequently. But it was just this little like house where people lived. It had a few stories. And there was like in the entryway area, there was this room where it was kind of like a living room and there was a class. And I just remember at the breaks, I would cry. I would just like walk outside and cry. Whoa. (laughs) I didn't know why. I didn't know if it was discomfort or if it was just like some part of my unconscious and my psyche getting shown to me that I wasn't ready to meet. I just remember being really emotional the whole day. Looking at their website now, they're really positioning as non-cult, women-first organization. What was their messaging back then? How do they position themselves? 
I would say what I was always pulled to is women's pleasure. Mm -hmm. So my background is in philosophy and my master's is in philosophy. And Michel Foucault, one of these philosophers who wrote a whole biography about sexuality, especially the way it shows up in women. And there's this phrase that I love that my dear friend Jamie told me about when I first read him. I have to give her credit. That says, women's desire and women's sexuality goes when we move from being the object of desire to the subject of our own pleasure. Mm. And that is something that sits with me a lot is I can tell when I'm relating to someone and I want to be the object, right? Like I want to be desired. And I think that's a natural aspect of being a woman versus when suddenly I want to feel more powerful and I want to be the subject rather than the object. Oh, I love that. And that was what I think one taste was really trying to help me understand about myself was I didn't have to be desired as an object. I really got to be the subject of my own life and my own sexuality. I mean, even watching the documentary, it was very positioned as like women's empowerment, this spiritual awakening, like there was all these elements. Then it came out that it was basically like men fingering women, right? (laughs) Like these master stroker type (laughs) things. But there was like a whole pitch around it, right? So it's like see diddling. It's just like men diddling women. Diddling. Basically, it was like odd porn diddling. (laughs) My partner and I still love the term master stroker. That was like the title of the people that work there. But like I guess just like ultimate title to have. Yeah. I guess for people unaware, like what is orgasmic meditation? And like how was it sold? Yeah. Well, it's also so funny because I loved to do orgasmic meditation with a master stroker. There is a big difference between someone who is a master stroker and just a stroker. Like that name is funny and you could tell. They earned Damn. their title. They, they earned, earned the that title. I mean, I whew. feel like they can't even have that title anymore. Wait, were there different levels or was it just those two? It was mostly just like a master stroker or somebody who, who had been around or was like teaching at the center. That was the way I understood. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, a part of me feels like I should just kind of explain what the process would be like. Yes, please. To do the practice. So one taste is the organization, but the big practice is oming or orgasmic meditation. And the way that it was kind of presented is it's, you know, like a tantric practice, usually between men and women doesn't have to be for female pleasure, but really to bring both people into their bodies. The way that it's practiced is that basically someone will ask you or you ask someone if they want to ohm and then you set up a time. But in these groups or these day sessions, at the end of it, there would be the experiential where someone would ask you. And I remember (laughs) the first time I took the class, there was this man in a motorcycle jacket who just seemed this like really tough guy. And he's like, do you want to ohm? (laughs) And I was just like, I mean, I was terrified, but I also felt honored that he wanted to own with me. Like, Was he a master stroker? Oh, no. He had just taken a class. Oh, okay. he's just an amateur stroker. He was just such an amateur stroker. <laughs> yeah, sure. okay. And it was obvious. We, we sat down. We, we like sat down. We laid down in the nest where like your legs are like, you know, like butterfly position and your pants are off. And he definitely had no idea where the clitoris was. <laughs> And I just remember having this thought and I pretended the entire 20 minutes that he was doing it correctly because I was just so terrified to hurt his ego. Like this was the first time he'd done this. Yeah. We'd had a day long session. He still had no idea what to do. And I think back now and I'm like, I did not do that man a service. Like he really needed to know that that was, again, the moment of wanting to be the subject of desire, not the object of pleasure. The amount of times women have faked pleasure yes. to not mm-hmm. hurt someone's feelings. I can't yes. even. It breaks my heart because it doesn't serve anybody in that situation. No. You're not helping the other person get better. No, and there's yeah. a whole day about it. And I still, <laughs> I still went into the pattern of like, don't want to hurt this guy's ego. Right. You know? <laughs> He's in a motorcycle jacket. He's like so yeah. tough. He can't handle it. Okay, I wasn't there. This is only for the documentary. But what I gathered there was they were kind of like preying (laughs) on people, right? Like on those insecurities in the sense of like, you might need this help to like know how to pleasure a woman or maybe you don't have experienced sexual pleasure. So this is going to help you out. Like I guess from your perspective, like you said in your Facebook post, which I thought was super fascinating, was that you kind of miss the woman you were when you were in this. Can you kind of like elaborate more 
her about what was going on for you in your life and like what this did for you. How do I even describe what a weird and wild face that was in my, and like translated into words? But the first thing I want to mention is when you're talking about the men, it did tend to be a certain archetype. You know, they were often a little mm. more shy, often worked in tech. And I do feel like they knew that was their selling point to men. They knew that was where they could kind of get them interested. Right. And I would watch men do a class and then I'd see them months later at the center. They were different people. Mm. Interesting. You know, they definitely had more confidence. And there were men who <laughs> I would not be attracted to, but they were master strokers. And if you owned with them, oh my God, did I want to make out with them after that? Like yeah. it was just like, okay, yeah, you are enough. You're in your body. You're present with me. That is so sexy. And so there is something around attraction mm -hmm. that I think was really fun that got played with there is it, I think it did bring confidence in a few different layers. Mm -hmm. But for me, the woman that I miss was that I also was just way more confident and like in my desire. Right. It was so much easier for me to say what I wanted. Like I have this example where I would, the first time I did that practice after the like, <laughs> the guy diddled my clitoris and didn't find it ever in the first session that I did. I don't know why does the word diddle makes me laugh so much. The first scavenger hunt that you went the on. The first scavenger hunt that I went on. And the second person I owned with like got it. And I felt like something happened in my body where I was, I just like all the energy in my body went right to that pleasure center. Like all those nerves were like alive. I left that place and I walked down the street and I will never forget this because someone leaned out of a coffee shop and just like handed me a coffee. It was like main character energy, wow. you know, in a big way. And I was just like, cool, I'll take a coffee. And I'm like walking and I found like $3 on the ground. What? Mm. And then I walked into the store where my boyfriend at the time worked and I walked in and this is so bizarre to me still. He did a handstand when I walked in, like he was so dysregulated by whatever energy I had just been in. Wow. He didn't even know like how to interact with me and got really overwhelmed. So you had a boyfriend. Yeah. During this time. Yeah. I'm like, were we dating? We were together. I don't know. He was, he was probably one of the ones I, I missed the most that hadn't gotten away. Like I let that one go and he was a good one, but he was just so, I remember I just that was like, okay, you're going to take me to dinner tonight. And he's like, great. He's like, how about I just make you like a four course meal, like whatever you want. And I was just like, Damn. great. So he made me four courses that night and it was just great. Like there was something around the usual me, which tends to be a little bit people pleasing, placating. That part just like couldn't exist with men in the same way. Mm. Well, that makes so much sense because the whole practice is about your pleasure. You're not trying to right. bring pleasure to them. There are no other variables in here except for your pleasure. So that, of course, you're going to walk out feeling like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is my life. I'm the star. I'm still curious about the logistics of the whole thing. So if you don't mind, I would love to get into more details. <laughs> Are you with other people? Are you making eye contact while this is happening? <laughs> Do you introduce with names? Uh, can you just walk us step by step so we can just immerse ourselves? Like in, in the documentary, <laughs> it felt very like on display. Was that like accurate? Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was weird. It was really weird. I think the the times you do the own practice in a group. So you do these day longs or these courses, and then there'd be like an optional practicum basically afterwards. And so in those practicums, you would clear away the chairs and you set up these nests, which is just like a group of pillows where a woman would lie down, have her head supported and her knees supported. Usually people would give you their name before doing the practice, but I have to say there were definitely some times where I didn't know the name of the person who was <laughs> touching my body. So you would lie down and you'd like open your legs and usually the man would like put pressure on your thighs, just as kind of like mm -hmm. a Grounding, like here I am, my hands might be cold <laughs> or whatever it is. And they were supposed to tell you something that they noticed right away about, <laughs> about your vulva, which was always so oh, awkward. Interesting. But I get why they wanted you to do it. They wanted to just like make you all present together. Mm. So usually they'd say like, hey, I noticed like your left lip is longer than your right oh, wow. one. Okay. There's, you know, or like, they're just like, it was supposed to be something that hopefully wasn't a judgment, just like a noticing. Interesting. <laughs> okay, good. It's not like your vulva is really weird looking. It's like, oh, I'm just noticing you have a hairy vulva. I don't know. Like, stuff, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Or like, yeah, the hair in your vulva is is a gradient of dark brown. You know, whatever it is. Like, okay. It was just like a noticing. An observation. Okay. Observation to start with. And then they'd kind of get into position and their leg was underneath you and then the other leg was kind of up to the side and they'd have, they'd be kind of hunched over. So it's like they'd usually stroke on your right side with their right hand. And first they would kind of like move the index finger up to kind of expose the clitoris away from the hood. And then there are two different strokes. There was either an upstroke or a downstroke. And the master strokers always knew which one you needed. Mm. The amateur strokers were just kind of like all around or like they weren't exacting enough to actually have a stroke at all. It was just kind of like a movement (laughs) of the finger. Yeah, it's a sketch. A sketch. They were just like poking. I was a downstroke type. And so I could tell right away how intuitive and how attuned the person was to me based on what they started with. Because mm. I tend to be somebody who's like a little bit more heady, a little bit kind of tend more towards ungroundedness. And so if someone sat down and right away would do downstrokes, it was just like bringing me back down, mm-hmm. bringing me back down. And that's what the master strokers would do. And then you do that for like, I think it's 15 minutes and usually do two rounds. And so then usually you would then, there'd be a different person you'd agree to own with and they would come over and you would switch. Oh, okay. So there's different people you're oming with in one session. Are you making eye contact? No, they were so focused. Technically they needed to be hyper-focused on your clitoris. Sometimes they would try to look at you and then I feel like they would be wanting a response from me. And that's why I would kind of go into like performative mode. Mm. Right? Because then I suddenly needed to be a part of their experience. So would the goal be to orgasm? Okay. So this is the difference between climax and orgasm. Okay. So climax would be where like you're building towards something and you want to tip over that point and have that full release. That would be climax. Orgasm is where you're just like building, you're in the energy of pleasure. Mm. And so there's no goal with orgasmic meditation. It was just to be present with the sensation. Interesting. I just have another logistics question. If you already (laughs) tagged your second partner, so you already know who's coming in next. If you have the next dance card. (laughs) Who's coming in to fill the spot. What's the hygienic practice in between? So they would be wearing gloves. Oh, it's with gloves. Interesting. I feel like I, yeah, I forgot that big piece. They were wearing gloves. I think for a while it was hand sanitizer. I think it may have changed to gloves or it may have been. That's a detail that I do not fully remember. That is a great question, Yue. Mm, Okay. So I feel like you kind of started with this about just the benefits that it had for you, right? That you just felt empowered, you felt vibrant, all that stuff. What else was good about this experience? You know, I think I would want to say community. But I think what was strange is that Mm. I don't know that I felt like the people in that community were my people. And that was pretty clear to me kind of from the get-go is like, it was nice to see them. There were people that I recognized, but a lot of the relationships were built on trying to sell you something. Mm. They were trying to sell another course. They were, you know, trying to get you to sign up for something else or like an intensive. And so that was when the sales stuff really shifted. That was where I started to realize like, oh, these aren't friendships. These are just people who are nice to me because they want me to sign up for something. And I could feel that. I don't know that other people were maybe as attuned or didn't care. But for me, it felt kind of fake in that way where someone would be like, oh, it's so great to see you. And, and then immediately be like, hey, how's the practice going? What do you think? And it's just like, right. I'm not uh, dumb. I upsell like, you. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah. And like, I'm self-employed. I have my own business. Like, right. I know what's happening. <laughs> You're like, I've taken this marketing course. Yeah. What about the other people? Like, did you feel connected to them at all? You mean the people who are like touching my clitoris? Did I feel connected? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like other people that were doing <laughs> yeah. this practice with you. Those people. Yes. Okay, so I have this kind of thing in the Bay Area where I don't like when people just throw around the word community because for me, community is built over time and consistency. Yes. Friendships and connections are built over time and consistency. And that was really hard for me when there would be these lectures about why we're so stingy with our intimacy. Like we can create intimacy with anyone. Why do we just get so stingy? Like OM is the way to create intimacy. And in my head, I'm like, are you insane? Like intimacy is about safety and security and trust that is built over time with consistency. So no, intimacy is not being built in a day-long class with people you just see once and you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. Right. That's not intimacy and connection to me. 
Did you meet the other women who were also part of this program? Yeah. So there are definitely other women who were like taking the classes or women I would like see around. Mm -hmm. But eventually what I noticed is that women who are around often enough would get recruited to work for them. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's where the cult comes in. Because I was like, this all sounds okay so far, right? I mean, you're getting pleasure out of it. It's something kind of interesting. You're learning about your own pleasure. Where does the cult part come into play? Yeah. So I remember the moment where all of a sudden I was like, okay, this is off is when Monday night, I think lectures that would happen and there would be a lecture and then you could have like the practicum or you could own later. Oh my goodness. Suddenly they started playing all this like loud pump up music when someone would come up to go lecture. Uh, it was like Tony Robbins style or something. Oh my yes. God. Wow. <laughs> I was just like, okay, this is so unnecessary. We don't need pump up music. And then it'd be like, yeah. And just like trying to get people to stand up and like clap and jump around. And it just started to feel really weird and performative to me. So that was one clue where I was like, okay, something's changing here. The second thing is I could feel how much they were really starting. And the documentary touched on this. They were really pushing towards the sexual energy and sexual tension in rooms mm. where it went for me around like a connection practice where they were trying to empower women to then it felt like a little bit of that performative object of desire energy where like, mm. you know, you have to talk about sex. The answers you give have to be sexual. Interesting. Oh. I just, I'm really sensitive to like forced sexual energy. Yeah. Yes. It makes me really uncomfortable. So you said that you did this for six years. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. You say that. I'm like, okay, so this felt really off to me and yet I still just yeah. stayed. Oh, okay. yeah, I guess I'm like and curious I just like going back. When, when did this start to like set in that something fell off? <laughs> was it like day one or was it year six? You know, like what was this? <laughs> right. It's a good question. I mean, so I think day one, I was a little like, okay, this is kind of intense. Like there's a stranger touching me and they're telling me that this is good, but it also feels really uncomfortable. And I'm like being asked to go against my own comfort zone in some way and like being applauded for pushing against what my body is saying. And I think the piece that they were really missing is there was just no trauma informed aspect to this. Oh, like right. I look now and I'm like, there were no therapists involved. There were mm -hmm. no people who were trauma informed to help them even give a thing of like, hey, if you've had sexual assault, right. this practice might be uncomfortable or you may yeah. not want strange men touching you or you may not want to have forced sexual chemistry with someone. Yeah, no kidding. Right. I still am just like boggled. And so for me, I think it was, I had a therapist at the time and I think slowly but surely I started to understand like, I'm someone who has sexual sexual trauma, there's a reason the situation feels off to me. And while I think I put myself in the situation to try to heal in some way and like mm -hmm. repeat the patterns of pain, I don't have to keep repeating them in this specific way. I can see how that could feel almost like a trap, you know, yeah. for anybody who's still healing from trauma mm -hmm. to be part of this safe space mm -hmm. that's not actually looking out for your safety. Right. In those six years, how often did you go to the classes and how much were these classes? So I took the basic OMIN course three times, the day longs. I took them twice by myself and once with a partner. And actually, I think for one of those, I definitely went for free because they needed to fill mm. a space for a woman. And I'd been around long enough. That it was like easy to say yes to that. But I'd say for about two years, I went almost every single week to the lectures. Wow. They had women's group. I would go to the women's groups. And then I think by the last year I was involved, it was maybe like once every few months. I was also had an oming practice with a guy I'd met at one of the lectures. And so we were meeting up mostly at his apartment to do the practice, not going to the events. And what kind of relationship was that? Was that purely for practice? Yeah, it was just for oming. We only omed together. But where it got weird is then after about six months, he started to want something more. Mm. I don't know if he just felt resentful that he was like just pleasuring me and he didn't get anything. I don't know if that was his emotional process at all. But then he asked me to like be physical and I ended up being physical and it like didn't feel good to me. And I just kind of like went along with it because I felt like I kind of owed him because the safety, yeah. the container wasn't really set in the way that I maybe thought it was. So it was tricky. And then I just said that, yeah, I don't think we should. Shit. Were the lectures free or did you have to pay for those too? And like how much were those OM courses that you took? So the lectures were not free. I think they were maybe like 20 bucks or something. And that was like an evening thing. There were maybe like two or three hours where you do like exercises and there was a lecture. And then the day longs, I think they were around $300 from what I remember. Okay. But that was really early on. 
Would you say in those six years you spent thousands of dollars for the organization? Yeah, I'd say a few thousand dollars. I mean, at the time I was there for the most part, I was a grad student. And so they knew that I was not going to be spending all this money on their coaching programs, on their intensive retreats. Like after a certain number of years, they knew that I was not going to be the person that was going to spend money there. I was going to go to the weekly talks, maybe fill in for the home day longs if they needed a spot that was free. But I feel really grateful that, I mean, I just didn't have the money to invest. I was in grad school. And I think on the documentary, there were some that were like $10,000 or something for courses. Was that accurate? Yeah, because the closer you got to Nicole and just teaching and learning just with her, the more expensive you wanted access to Nicole. She was a rock. She is a rock star. I mean, she is a powerhouse. Like that woman is a powerhouse. So of course you want to spend a lot of money if it means you get to meet her and get to spend time with her. How do you think One Taste started getting exposed for what they were doing? I think the documentary did a really great job of kind of following the thread of like, the more one person is in power, unchecked, Mm -hmm. the more likely everything is to just not work. I remember the days that she would lecture and she would say things and sometimes I was just like, ooh, like is someone no one's going to say anything to her about right. that cult leader yeah yeah no checks or balances it's just her i feel like all the women who worked there they were definitely doing some really amazing witchy stuff because the thing that always stands out to me that i still remember is that when they were teaching up front they would always sit with their legs wide open wow. so you could just see right up their skirt wow and it was so hard not to look interesting and i know they did it on purpose they were like playing with power they were playing with this like why do i as a woman have to sit contained. And I loved it. Mm. I was like, oh my God, that is so bold. So I find myself sometimes still when I have the urgency to just like keep my legs really tight and crossed to like play with how far apart can my legs go before I feel too uncomfortable? I mean, that left an impact. Like, and I know it was purposeful. Was the stuff that they had on the documentary about like forcing people to have sex with each other, did you see any of that? Or did you experience that side of things? You know, I wasn't deep enough kind of embedded in the community at that point when that was happening. But I did notice some really strange things where suddenly Nicole was really promoting monogamy and then people Mm. were getting married in the community. And I felt like it was like the cult thing where Nicole was maybe like, hey, you two would be a good match. Interesting. I don't know of any of those marriages that still exist, but I remember when like four different couples got married and I was like, okay, this is weird. What's Nicole's background? I don't know much about her. It's funny because I'm a full-time astrologer. So of course I've been like dying, scouring the internet for her birthday and I can't find it anywhere. (laughs) I think the documentary tried to hit on a little, but she's pretty mysterious. And I think that was a part of the lure is that she's obviously so powerful, but also with a lot of power can come sometimes a history of abuse Mm. or trauma. And I think some of the things in the documentary touched on where like, yeah, there seems like there's some pretty weird things going on in her growing up years that I don't know her process on how to deal with them. They definitely pitched her as this like startup founder. Like, I mean, that's obviously Orgasm Inc. The way that at least the documentary was portraying it, which was really interesting because it's like clearly goes a lot more than your average startup, right? Yeah. I mean, she has the star power of a startup person for sure. I mean, it's just so funny because to me, I was in awe of her and at the same time, terrified and feeling weird about some of the things she was saying. And so I felt a lot of kind of this constant dissonance around my experience of her. Yeah. I just Googled her. You're right. There really isn't much information about her or her background, what she's experienced in her life. But It does seem like she's still involved with the organization. It's been equated to a prostitution ring. How do you feel about that? I don't know. That feels like a stretch. I mean, unless she was somehow being accused of like people paying money to get to have sex, that seems like a real stretch to Mm -hmm. call it a prostitution ring. Also, I will say that as a former sex worker, I don't know. That feels a little like, hey, let's not just like throw out terms around what that is, right? Like, I feel a little protective of calling it that. Like, looking back on this whole experience, like, if you were to do it again, would you do it? And like, what did you learn from all this? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think it's the question I'm still asking myself. Like, it was re-wounding and it was healing. 
And it's just this, I'm still holding the paradox of all the ways it was really great for my process and all the ways it was really painful. I think what I really walked away with was this feeling of that there is a part of me that is incredibly powerful and incredibly sexual. And it's the part that I'm afraid of that also the world is also a little afraid of. And that was what One Taste was kind of trying to show is that, yeah, people should be a little afraid of women who are that empowered and that powerful around their sexuality. It scares me still a little bit to be like, am I really as powerful as I was during those years? And now I don't see myself that way. Like that's an interesting thing to kind of noodle on, I guess. It is such a strong message because we are told to hide our sexuality. We are told to save the discussions around sexuality for our girlfriends over brunch. And here's a multi-million dollar organization dedicated to exploring your sexuality. That in itself is already very empowering to understand. But the <laughs> but then there comes the contrived aspects of the cult-like leadership that just adds this element of confusion to me. I'm like, do I support, should we be supporting this? What do you think is the right balance for like sexual pleasure liberation, but with boundaries? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I'm still trying to understand in myself is that I think this aspect of being a woman where we have to come into relationship with our sexuality in a way that men don't have to. Yeah, I'm someone who I think has spent a lot of time trying to be really safe, especially around other women. Like I don't want them to feel like I'm flirting with their boyfriends. I want to be safe in my sexuality. And yet there's a part of me that is very unsafe. And I want to give her that space to exist as well. And so, uh, yeah, I certainly don't have the answer, but I do think that the piece that I will stick with Nicole was that there's something around the way that she philosophically experiences the erotic states of being human in a way that I also mm. really resonate with, which is that I think we have to separate out erotic from sexual. Mm, that's a good point. And that in that space, we get that sexuality sometimes has to include someone else and comes with all these weird like boundary things. But for me, like I am a very erotic person. Like I live very much in like pleasure and moving towards creativity. And so when I'm focused on that route, the sexuality part doesn't have to be so scary because it's being channeled and it has a, a purpose and a place to go. I think sexuality just for sexuality's sake is where it gets really messy and kind of like in these weird power dynamics. And so I don't have the answers, but I definitely feel like I, I still struggle with what does it mean to be a woman and to have sexual power? And what do you do with it that doesn't make people uncomfortable, but also doesn't shut yourself down? Let's hold that thought for a quick message. We are so excited to share with you our new podcast exit interview. Dates don't usually end with a satisfaction survey, and yet we rate everything in our lives, from Uber drivers to local coffee shops. So why don't we do the same thing when dating? We're here to conduct the ultimate romance review, featuring daters hungry for love who have agreed to call up old flames to gather honest feedback. Welcome to Exit Interview. He upgraded himself to business class while I was in economy. <laughs> Wait, wow. What? There's feedback that will make you cringe. She could be a little bit hard-headed, like not reading the writing on the wall. And feedback that will make you swoon. When she said that she had feelings for you. I had no idea. Really? And maybe you'll learn a thing or two yourself about how you can be a better dater, lover, or partner. Obviously, like, knew I was going to learn something. I didn't expect this. Welcome to Exit Interview. Listen to Exit Interview on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you're obviously not doing one taste anymore, but there was clearly a part of you that, you know, was benefiting from this. Like, have you found any alternatives or any other practices to kind of like take the place of what one taste was giving you? You know, I haven't. I think my own meditation practices, like I really try to work with dance you know, like going to different dance classes, even like pole dancing classes where there's like no mirrors, where it really is just like me in my own experience rather than an object of desire. A part of me thinks that maybe what's next for me is trying to create something for myself that then can help other people who are in a similar space. And I don't know what that is, but I don't feel like I'm quite there yet to what I still need around this. 
I think it's something so many organizations are struggling with, including religion. I mean, I really think cults, religion, these organizations that are based upon very strong ideals and beliefs, what I think a lot of them are missing is what you were saying in the beginning. It's like a fallback or something that supports people who are either questioning or feeling unsafe or feeling Mm -hmm. insecure or who are not fully on board all the time. And if you feel like in a capacity like this, if you start doubting what you're doing and nobody's there to support you, it makes you feel so alone. You start to think, am I the only one feeling this way? Am I weird for feeling this way, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that was a constant thing in my head at the One Taste events. It's like, this feels really off to me. And I can't mention this to anyone because I think they're going to try to convince me otherwise. Mm. They might pretend to hear me or do that kind of placating, like, I hear you and, Uh you know, use the right language. But then ultimately, I think I was just afraid I would end up feeling more alone by sharing it. Yeah. Mm. So it does feel really good to kind of, when I watch that documentary, I just remember sobbing afterwards because it was like, even it's just like emotional even talking about it now because I suddenly got my experience mirrored back. Like there was something really off and I wasn't imagining it. Right. And that I think is like, oh yeah, I can trust myself because I knew it was off and I'm now finally getting to see that I was right. Was there anything else that you saw like like in retrospect, like the, after seeing that documentary that you were just like, oh my God, I didn't realize it in the moment, but it's so clear now. I think the big piece was when people started getting married. There were like a few couples. And I remember thinking like, I'm somebody who's prone to kind of wanting to be told what to do. Like I tend, there's a very submissive part of me. Like I've <laughs> lived at ashrams. I've kind of, you know, wanted a guru. And so if if I had been in there and Nicole was like, hey, I think you should marry this person. I'd be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I think that piece still stands out to me as like, whoa, that was weird. But in general, there would just be these moments where Nicole would say something and my my solar plexus would just collapse. And I, I don't know if it was the part when she was talking about rape mm. that was in the documentary or about trauma, where it was kind of just like, I don't even remember her exact words, but it was that sort of a flavor where there were things that she would say in lectures where it was just like, oh, she really isn't speaking to my experience. And just because I had trauma doesn't mean I am a victim. Mm. It means that I like I have a layer that I need to work with and there's nothing wrong with me. But I think if I just would have listened to her, I would have felt like, oh, this isn't a part of my story. I don't want it to be a part of my story rather than like the empowered victim archetype, which is able to acknowledge trauma and still move forward. And I think that archetype for some reason isn't what I was seeing in that. Looking back at the documentary, did you find you had anything in common? Was there like a common thread between the members of the organization that you can now identify? It's not for me the desire to belong. There's something around I really identified with kind of wanting to be told what to do. Mm, That's interesting. Like there was something around getting to turn to someone else to say like they know, like they know what's best. And if I just listen to them, my life is going to unfold okay. Because there's a part of me that just like gets so tired of being human and having to make decisions and figuring out where I'm going that I know the part of me that just sometimes ends up in really dominating situations And so I felt that in common in some way is that people can be really powerful and still really want to be told what to do. It's like that submit or be dominated. And sometimes it's just a lot easier to just kind of submit and fully submit. That is fascinating because I mean, that makes sense, right? Why people would turn to something that is cult or cult-like. Like it totally makes sense. I guess for anyone in the position right now that they might be in a community or organization that... There's some benefits to them, clearly, but it doesn't feel 100% right. What advice would you have for them? Hmm. It's funny because you're like, if someone you know might be in a sex cult, (laughs) here are the things (laughs) to think about. I don't know if I have advice other than like, I trust people's healing process, you know, and that sometimes we put ourselves in these situations because we need to kind of be in the most painful parts to wake up and like fully go into that pain. And we may not know it at the time, but I believe the psyche is always pushing for more consciousness. And however we do that, whether that's through an organization, but I just encourage people to trust themselves. I mean, that's something I know how to do a lot better now, knowing what I know. 
from that experience. You know, our society is constantly saying progress comes from pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, right? That's a saying. So it's like, push yourself, push yourself to the limit. But from your experience, you were trying to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, but at the same time want to feel safe doing so. So what do you think for people who are feeling like they're in a situation like that? Like, I really want to progress. I really want to see if I can do this, but I also want to know my limits. What's a barometer for them to measure that against, whether it's a good thing or not? For me, there's just so much around trauma-informed spaces. I'm a fan of having a coach and a therapist, someone whose job is to bring you higher and someone whose job is to bring you back down into yourself. And so for me, the, the red flags are always when people are pushing for more experience and to push outside the comfort zone, but they're not with that acknowledging like, hey, but also if you've experienced harm or trauma and this might mirror that experience, yeah, like be cautious. Right? Like, I don't even think it has to be this big caveat thing. I think it just needs to be kind of written into the conversation around going outside your limits, but doing so in spaces where you feel safe emotionally and physically. And that if something feels similar to something you've experienced in the past and it doesn't feel good, to trust that. Like, you don't have to push out in a way that's beyond your limits. Like, the psyche doesn't need to be pushed to such an extreme all the time. Like, I think, especially in the Bay Area, you know, I think there is a lot of this, like, yeah. forefront evolution of consciousness. And I'm all for the evolution yeah. of consciousness. Disrupt. Oh, my yeah. God. Disrupt. <laughs> and I'm all for that. Like, I am so interested in evolution and the zeitgeist. And I'm all for doing that. You know, Carl Jung talked a lot about, like, you need the roots before you can fly. Like, you need the deepest roots before you can really evolve. So for me, the involution has to happen before the evolution. And that's what creates the safety to keep going and get out of the comfort zone. The roots have to be deep enough. You have to know yourself well enough. You have to be contained enough in your own self-intimacy for that to be safe, I think. Oh, I love that quote. Yeah. Involution for evolution. I mean, this whole conversation has been really eye-opening yeah. and fascinating. I mean, I think my biggest takeaway is like, all this stuff is very layered, right? Like you watch a documentary and you just see one side of it. But there's a reason why this is attracting like people in the first place, right? There is a need that's being met. So we'll never know Nicole's and the team's like full motivations behind one taste. But I don't know if I necessarily think it was like all bad. Like I think there was some aspect that was helpful to people. But it's also like you said too, like recognizing to listen to your own intuition. I think that's really powerful. And that's like kind of the dark side of these types of organizations, right? Is that they make you question it because it's a cult-like following. Everyone's doing the same thing. So I think that's really important to keep in mind that you might want to explore different things. Like we don't know what's going to be a cult, what's not. But as soon as you have that sixth sense that something doesn't feel right, listen to it. Like you're you know, like, don't question yourself. You instinctively know what's good and what's not for you on some levels. I also found what you said really interesting of just wanting to, like, follow someone and, like, not think about all the intricacies of life. And it's really interesting mm -hmm. to me that that's like kind of a key thread that connected you with all the people there that everyone kind of had that mentality. I feel like that's something in life that life can be very overwhelming. But at the same time, like, how do you balance relinquishing control, but not relinquishing so much control that you end up in something that's not serving you? Yeah, that's really well said, Julie. And I love that you could really hear in me like still that paradox of something being good and not good, yeah. because that. That was what was really hard for me to watch about the documentary. And that's why I don't want to say anything bad about the organization because I do see the complexity of how much good that they also do. And I think that's the, the hard part about being human as well as like, how do we hold these complexities and not go so far into judgment or making something right and wrong? That to me is the juicy spot. Like I'm going to keep learning from my experience in one taste right. as long as I don't keep putting it in a box of like, that was bad mm -hmm. and this is good, but I still like stay curious around. It served me and it didn't. I feel like from our conversation, I learned so much about establishing our roots and creating a strong foundation so that we can grow. And sometimes we talk about growth and progress as very external and it's very linear. You go up. But I think from our conversation, it feels like it goes both ways. Like you go out and then you go back in. Mm -hmm. And people shouldn't think about that as taking steps 
backwards. You're not actually doing that. You're just reconnecting with who you are. And I totally get it. Sometimes I get so lost in the sea of messages out there. There's just always something new that I want to explore, a belief I want to subscribe to. But if I pursued all of them, I'd be so confused because I would get lost in who I am. Who am I anymore, right? If I'm subscribing to all of these different beliefs. But I love this idea of having the curiosity to explore, having the courage to explore, but never forgetting to check back in with yourself because ultimately that is the anchor to your belief system and it's not what someone else is telling you to do. So I really appreciate that sentiment. That's such a grounding sentiment for us all to subscribe to. So are you going to go home? Like, are you going to take a class? <laughs> <laughs> I think, isn't it shut down now? Is it just on doing, virtual? Yeah. So yeah, you're obviously. <laughs> it's only virtual now. They have shut down their business. Bankrupt. Yeah. I don't know. I think, actually, I think they still have gatherings in New York. They do. Okay. Did they operate through COVID? How did that work? <laughs> I wasn't really in touch with them at all during pandemic times. I feel like because I really left, I guess it would have been like 2017, 2018 was when I really started to just like pull away and didn't go to any events anymore. So I don't know what it was like for them during the pandemic. I mean, I'm still Facebook friends with people who I met there. And it's funny because one of the women lives internationally now. And I feel like she's like always trying to still sell me things. Is it Amway now? Has she moved on? (laughs) I don't know. But it's like whenever I get a message from her, I'm like, I think she wants to sell me something. And this just feels like it did 10 years ago. (laughs) That's the part that's so icky about it. Yeah. Something else that I've learned in our conversation. Sometimes you think, you watch these documentaries, you think, oh, who would join a sex cult? (laughs) Who are these people? But you're obviously a very self-aware, intelligent human being who felt that this really met some of your needs during that time and you found it intriguing enough to pursue. And it just shows that all of us are looking for something meaningful. And I think that's Mm -hmm. the end message that I'm getting. It's like, we're all looking for something meaningful. It's not like we're looking for a cult-like experience, but we really want this life to mean something that we are making the most of every day. So that's really the message I'm getting is we can't judge people who've been in cults because we probably all have been in some sort of cult (laughs) one time or another. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Anyway, I mean, that makes me feel better. I definitely feel a little shame. Well said. (laughs) Thank you so much for this conversation. Are you interested in speaking with people who may be in a similar situation? Are you opening yourself up as a resource by chance? I don't really feel like I am, I'm not a professional in this sort of a realm. I can really only speak to my personal experience, but I do really encourage people. I'm an astrologer, but most of my friends are therapists. Like I am just such a fan of working with someone who can hold a container for you, for you to go deeper in a safe space so that you have the resources. It can build the skills to make those roots so that you can evolve and like live the life that you're meant to live. So that's more of, I'm definitely not a good resource. And I, it feels weird to me still to be like, I don't know how I'm an expert on this. I guess I'm just an expert because I definitely went through it and had a really hard time. <laughs> and you are telling us about it, right? You learned from it, which is so wonderful. Thank you for giving us your time and your stories. But for us to get such wonderful guests like Rebecca, it really helps when you give us a nice rating and review and Apple Podcasts. Five stars, something nice, something you learn from this episode definitely goes a long way for our show. So please do that when you get the chance. And on that note, we're going to wrap up this episode. Stay Dateable! The Dateable Podcast is part of the Frolic Media Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Dateable Podcast and visit datablepodcast.com for access to all the episodes and our premium programs. Also, make sure to subscribe today if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. So you are the first to get all the latest episodes. And most importantly, stay dateable. Stay dateable.